Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Lance Bangs made his name as a filmmaker documenting indie rock bands. He'd share homes with them, follow them on tour. When you're doing that for months at a time with bands who aren't famous yet, you're sort of taking a gamble that anybody's going to want to see your film. You know, like in Athens, I was living with Jeff Mangum and Nutrimilk Hotel when they were writing and recording in the airplane over the sea. And I knew, like, this is crucial material and I wish everyone was hearing this and getting as much out of this emotionally as I am and would go make sure that I was at every event to shoot and film and document it. And I, like, as time has gone on, I felt like, yeah, like, I was right about that. I was right about that. Like, that there aren't a whole lot of times that I spent six months in the van with a band that didn't end up being worthwhile of my life for that experience. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Lance Banks. He'll tell me what made him want to document a bunch of up-and-coming stand-up comics for his new TV show, Flophouse. Nobody's turning down sets or open mic performances to go hang out with a serious fiancé. They're just all about making, 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 working, trying things out, experimenting, learning what didn't work, making, making, traveling somewhere else to try things there. We'll talk about the unique challenges of filming idiotic stunts for Jackass. But first, I'll talk to Tao Wen. Her new album, A Man Alive, explores the relationship she has or doesn't have with her father. She's had to consider whether or not she wants to reconnect with him while she still can. And I hadn't really been thinking about my dad in that way, and then she just I was just bawling in this very cute restaurant. It was so embarrassing. <laughs> but, it, you know, it, that moment is so vivid to me because I realized that this, like, fiery pit has informed everything that I've done and not done in my entire life. Plus, I'll tell you why you should give Black Sabbath another listen. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Chow Wen's music is tough to pigeonhole. Her songs, with her band The Get Down, Stay Down, are brighter than most folk music, popular than most indie rock, funkier than either of those. Her singing is insistive and sometimes almost percussive. Here's a little of her first LP, We Brave Bee Stings and All, from 2008. The song's called Bag of Hammers. On her new record, she's collaborated with an old friend, Meryl Garbus, who's better known as Toon Yards. Garbus brings her own vaguely hip-hop-ish aesthetic. The bouncy, dancey, sampled, chopped, and processed sound somehow complements rather than competing with the heavy and heartfelt themes of the album. Here's some of Millionaire. Chowen, welcome back to Bullseye. Thank you so much for having me back. Of course. So 
I only just learned that you grew up in Falls Church, Virginia. That's the metro stop that I get off to visit my aunt and uncle. Um, Jesse, for real? Yeah, yeah, the, for real. On the Orange Line, the East Falls Church? Yeah, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, outside of that really dope Peruvian chicken spot that I think probably opened up since you left, tell me a little bit about what it was like when you were a kid. If Is it Edie's Peruvian chicken? That sounds is, right. I believe that's that. When, yeah, I, mean, I think that opened up um, right as I was entering middle school. And it was, it's, I'm glad to hear it's still delicious. Yeah, that, that chicken's what's up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, growing up, the most prominent and consistent memories I have are of um, working in my mom's laundromat. But that, that started when I was about 12. And um, so that was what I was doing in some of my most formative years. It was uh, folding strangers' laundry because we had a wash, dry, and fold service. And I had my guitar at the counter where I made change. That that was happening. Uh, I spent a lot of time in my room playing guitar, and I spent a lot of time watching television. Was behind the counter at the laundromat an interesting place to sort of watch the world pass by, or were you too busy folding? It was. Yeah, actually, you know, the laundromat, it's a really interesting cross-section of people because everybody needs to have something laundered eventually. And if it were the more affluent or, you know, upper-middle-class residents, they would bring their comforters in or their dry cleaning. And we also had customers who, you know, were perhaps homeless and, and coming in to what to wash their loads. Then uh and I yeah, as a public service announcement, I learned that when a tag says dry clean only, they're most likely just bringing it to a laundromat with larger washers. <laughs> <laughs> Especially with comforters, and they'll they'll fleece you. They'll charge you twelve, fourteen dollars to dry clean that thing, but then they'll just bring it into our laundromat. <laughs> Wait, who were the Who were the other members of your family? I know you had a brother. I had a brother. I have an older brother who's almost eight years older, and my mom, a real upstanding lady, and um, my grandmother lived with us. My grandmother came over from Vietnam when I was five years old. And and she's she's still living with my mom. So she helped raise me as well. Was your mom born in the States? No, she was born in Vietnam. And uh, she immigrated around 74, 75, um, when the Vietnam War was sort of at its height. <laughs> well, you know, when Saigon fell. Was there a Vietnamese-American community in Falls Church or in the D.C. area? There is actually quite a robust one. It, um, it, I think, might be second only to Southern California, to Orange County. Uh, That's what I heard. I don't know. We get pretty competitive, I guess. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, there's a pretty—it's a robust yet small community. um, And there's this place called the Eden Center, which is this strip mall, but everything in it is— is Vietnamese owned and operated, and it's where you'll get the most authentic everything. And that was just a few blocks from my house, and very close to that metro stop, to our metro stop. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Tao Wen, front woman for the band Tao and the Get Down Stay Down. Their new album is called A Man Alive. What parts of 
being Vietnamese American as a kid and as a teenager, did you think were cool? And were there things that you thought were embarrassing? Oh, man. I would say, unfortunately, I didn't think anything <laughs> about being Vietnamese was cool because, I, you know, I was growing up in northern Virginia. And the push at that time, the interest was in assimilation. And, you know, I'm grateful that my parents um, instilled in me the importance of of uh, preserving language and culture. And so I only spoke Vietnamese at home. And also, you know, my grandmother was there and she didn't speak much English. So I, I only communicated with her uh, in Vietnamese. And I, but at the time, you know, we, you know, every lunch that I brought in, I thought it was like this, I can smell the fish sauce. This is not going to work out well. And I was embarrassed about having friends over and, you know, my mom would go in to meet my teacher for teacher parent conferences and I would be, now I have so much admiration for what they went through, but then I was embarrassed that they didn't speak English that well and that I would have to interpret, you know, we'd, we'd have to, my brother and I filled out every government form you can imagine. And my brother I, I looked up to him so much, but his interest also, you know, we both felt pressured to assimilate and, and I just followed, followed that lead. What kind of music was going on in your house when you were a kid? Uh, we had, there's, um, this is, uh, now I treasure it so much and I'm, I'm, it just, it's, it brings me such joy to remember it. But there's this, um, I don't even know what to call it, but any first generation Vietnamese American kid and within my generation, my age bracket, will know what I'm talking about. It's this series called Paris by Night, and it's sort of put on by the American-based diaspora of South Vietnamese who left Vietnam uh, when Saigon fell or around that time. And it's a variety show series <laughs> where there's traditional folk music, there's traditional Vietnamese music, and then there's this just infusion of American pop music, but it's always a few years late. Mm -hmm. And so you'd see Madonna doing like a virgin, but then two or three years later, Linda Drangdai would uh, be doing um, Material Girl. You know, or it, it just was a little bit. And then the, the boy band thing happened, and then you would see it of a couple waves. Uh, you know, a different iteration later on. And my grandmother loved to w listen and watch the the more traditional folk musicians. But if you had an eight-year-old brother, mm -hmm. uh, was he sitting around the house listening to Vietnamese folk music? Oh, no. Oh, oh definitely not. So then there's the, which was incredible, and I, I think now really helped influence um, my musical tastes and and bent, but my brother was a big hip hop fan, and I remember when I was four or five or six, stealing his Fat Boys tape and listening to that over and over again, and Tone Loke, and and so he was totally into um, different strains of American pop music. So that was happening Motown, but you know my my parents also loved. Yanni <laughs> and Lionel Richie. And my mom lo loves Yanni so hard and thinks he's so handsome. 
and we we didn't have cable, but whenever PBS had, uh, you know, he had live at Red Rocks or whatever. At the Acropolis. He did a special at the oh, Acropolis. Yeah. That's the one that's, I remember. That's what I, you're right. Totally. John Tesh was live at Red Rocks, <laughs> but Yanni was at the Acropolis. Uh, so there is that. <laughs> there, I remember somehow the local cable access channel had a had the Lionel Richie hello video circulating, and I watched that. Cause, you know, we didn't have MTV, but I somehow could watch this Lionel Richie video whenever I wanted. And, you know, and that's the one where the the woman is blind, and he, you know, she's sculpting a face, and then he puts his face right where she's sculpting. Yeah, sure. No, I mean, yeah. I don't think I don't think you need to explain what happens in the <laughs> no. Lionel Richie hello video. <laughs> I just wanted to go there for myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Tao Wen. Let's hear another track from Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down's new album. This is a song called Meticulous Bird. Listen, listen, pay attention. I know the science of the fiction of conviction of the henchman. I am here. songs have always had an element of, if not upbeat fun, at least a sort of upbeat anthemic quality, even when the subject matter is heavy, as it often is on this record. Mm -hmm. And I wonder why, why do you think that is? Why are you as, you know, somebody who for a long time was going from town to town with an acoustic guitar, Mm -hmm. not wailing plaintively, which I think is what, you know, (laughs) is the expectation. I think um, content-wise, you're right. You know, I think uh, especially with this record, there's a lot of darker content and there's a lot of grief and rage and and I didn't want it to just stop there. I didn't want the the writing of the the sort of the analysis of it or the synthesis of the songs or to sort of be trapped within those constraints. I wanted something more productive from it, and I I wanted the ability to to celebrate um, my life as it is now. And you know, the practical sort of practically speaking. If I'm going to do these songs every night, I can't have them sound as sad as they are or else, you know, I would just melt on a, in a puddle on the ground. And I wanted this kind of kinetic, frantic energy. I wanted to tap into it in a productive way and, and feel that there's joy no matter what. I feel like big feelings have a lot of energy to them, a lot of juice. Um, and sometimes it can be hard to feel like you have a place for that energy to go, especially if you're embarrassed to or uncomfortable about being 
uh, you know, angry or self-righteous or sad or sort of expressing negative stuff. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if part of that feeling of wanting to make these songs kinetic is about just wanting to have a place to put the energy, even yeah. a even a physical place. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah, I I agree with you one hundred percent. And these songs, uh, it's also the the best and most effective way I could find to communicate. And you're right. You have to find a way to do it comfortably. And sort of balance the vulnerability of it, balance um, being so exposed. And if you can manage to do it in a way that you are actually exhilarated by and benefit from, um, then <laughs> then you should. Let's hear some more music from Tao Wen's new album with her band Tao and the Get Down, Stay Down. The album's called A Man Alive. Um, and this song is called Give Me Peace. I'm so much older now. Give me peace, give me peace. Float it up over and out so you can sleep and I can see. If you could, you would do it. A lifetime of love to prove. But I would never hold you to it. Everyone has the right to move. So, Tal, the overarching theme of this record is your father. Um, can you tell me what relationship you had to him and what relationship you have to him? Sure. Um, when I was young, he was around um, until I was about 11 or 12, um, but he wasn't. He's a very charming guy, and and I adored him, but I wouldn't say that he was... Um, yeah, well, you know, he, he varying degrees of um, disappointing uh, character. Um, so the, he, 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 I, I think he, uh, he was, and perhaps still is, like a, a very reckless person who was not meant to be a parent and, um, and there are varying levels of transgressions within that. Um, so, and then now I don't have any relationship with him and we've, uh, you know, I've, we've been out of touch for years and I'm, you know, I hear about him from time to time and, and, um, I don't remember the last time I saw him and he, might call he called a couple years ago i think but i didn't pick up and and that was the last i heard from him so we have a pretty uh fascinating estrangement going on why didn't you pick up i just didn't feel like it i mean <laughs> it's just yeah. such a drag it's such um it takes so much work to enter that territory and then to reemerge from it 
and I I don't know I don't know how to <clears throat> how to do it well and I I don't know that I will and and there's you know there's a lot of uh, emotions uh, that conflict with each other and and um, it's a toss up which ones win the day depending on the day and this record definitely covers that territory it definitely documents the the feelings of optimism and forgiveness and whatever why did you want to spend the time with this part of your life to to write the songs and make the album you know, it's funny as I, I didn't, I didn't want to, I really didn't want to. And I spent my whole life not really wanting to investigate this part of my life because it, it is such a source of, uh, grief, but the, a record was due and I started writing songs for it. And I, and it was so clear. Every song was about some aspect directly or indirectly, um, you know, having to do with my relationship with my dad and, and um, the, the insistence of those songs made it clear that it was it was that was happening. And I guess as I've uh, as I get older, and I you know I remember having breakfast with a friend of mine. This actually was one of the seminal moments of the creation of the record. Was I was having breakfast with a friend of mine who has a very similar relationship with her dad, very complicated and. Um, and she had heard that he was sick and she was thinking she was sort of struggling with whether or not to get in touch and do we get in touch before we we actually cannot you know and and i remember just having and i hadn't really been thinking about my dad in that way and then she just i was just bawling in this very cute restaurant with um lace tablecloths and mismatched like intentionally mismatched um flatware and teacups and whatever and uh it was so embarrassing <laughs> but it you know it that moment is, is so vivid to me because i i realized that <clears throat> this this weight this this like fiery pit that i you know has informed everything that i've done and not done in my entire life and so it, you know, it felt like it was time, even though I, I was um, incredibly nervous and scared to do it. I'll finish my conversation with Tao Wen after a break. We'll talk about stepping out from under the shadows of our parents. Plus, I'll sit down with filmmaker Lance Bangs. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Smith. Save time and money on your home improvement, remodeling, and repairs. Smith works to get you quotes from top-rated contractors in 24 hours. Contractors bid to complete your projects, anything from kitchen and bathroom remodeling to painting, plumbing, landscaping, cleaning, and much more. Get free quotes today by texting the word NPR to Smith. Message and data rates may apply. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Check out the newest NPR podcast, Embedded. Each week, Embedded takes you to a new place out in the world searching for the people behind a headline. This week, hear what addiction looks like up close in a drug house in rural Indiana. Ground zero for an unexpected crisis, at least in America in 2016. An HIV outbreak. 
Listen and subscribe to Embedded now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. I'm talking to Tao Wen. The new album from her band Tao and the Get Down Stay Down is called A Man Alive. It seems to me like, I don't know, this is true for me. I don't know if it's true for you, but it might be, that one of the most difficult things about living life as a grown-up is getting to a point where you feel like you don't have to live your life relative to your parents. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because <laughs> your your entire formation of who you are is relative to your parents. And, you know, at some point you start to give yourself permission to just be a person. <laughs> I feel like that's one of the things that that I hear on the album both you processing this incredible pain and also you kind of asserting your right to be yourself and be in a person in the world who in a way is not beholden to that relationship. Does that make sense? <clears throat> yeah, totally. And I think that that any element of joy that, uh, that someone would hear throughout this record, which I hope there are, you know, I hope that happens a lot. It's in there. It was in there for me. And, and so I hope that gets conveyed. Um, all of those, those, uh, celebrations and joyous moments are, uh, are about that, which I didn't realize until, uh, you know, which I'm continuing to realize is I think you're right. It's that the assertion of, of independence from whatever weight that is. And, you know, it also was striking to me that I, I approached, you know, Astonished Man, I wrote one of it was one of the first ones. And I thought that the entire record would be comprised of what that song is comprised of, which is this element of forgiveness and wanting reunion and wanting peace. And to let go of that and to understand that this record contains a lot of things um, and to accept that there is no resolution beyond the resolution that <laughs> that is at hand, which is out of my control, you know, which is only within the only thing I can control is my my part in it. And, and to sort of free myself of that, too, of this idea that broken relationships must mend given their gravity and given the, you know, the fact that they were once so important, um, was, you know, probably the greatest source of peace for me. Was it different, do you think, to do this with friends? I mean, your bandmates, but also your producer, Meryl Garbus, who I know you've been friends with for quite a long time. Oh, yeah. I couldn't. I this record. Well, you know, I don't even think I would have done this record if if um, if it hadn't been Meryl producing, because so much of it was that I need. You know, she knows everything that's happened and she knows my history with my dad. And there's just a lot of messy stuff. And and she encouraged me a great deal to to get in there and try at least and you know with millionaire the song that you played earlier i i wrote that and i didn't want it to be on the record because i I, it freaked me out how vulnerable i sounded and how straightforward that sadness was but she's like are you 
kidding? Like this is going, you know, it has to. And, and I see it's the heart of the record in a lot of ways. And it, it's an incomplete effort without it. But yeah, I know there's, there's no way that I would have done it. And, and same with the band. We kept, we kept the session incredibly tight knit and it, it's only the band or, you know, some mostly in the past we've had guest musicians and collaborators and whatever, but this was so, uh, it was really important to me that it only be people who were my friends and who I trusted. Do you feel different having spent this time to make this album? I do. Yeah, which is so which surprises me because I didn't think it would have that much of an impact. But the entire process was so important, and I see now very necessary, and I feel. You know, with with the records in the past, it's like a, it's that kind of accountability thing that I I was talking about, where I kind of you know you you phone it in a little bit, or you don't deliver everything you could because if you do, then what what does that mean if if you're disappointed, you know? Oh. But anyway, w- with this one, I'm I'm so proud of the work we did, and I know that we and that I did everything I could do for this record. And I owed it to myself and and everything I do beyond this and performing it and talking about it or whatever is I'm is a service to the to that work that we put in and it's to help honor this important you know, this incredibly necessary dive <laughs> this this excavation you know i feel proud of myself and proud of our band and and i know that we worked as hard as we could well tao thank you so much pal it was so great to get to talk to you about this amazing album thank you jesse thanks so much for having me back tao wen's new album with her band the get down stay down is a man alive let's hear one last track nobody dies It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Lance Bangs seems to bring a camera with him wherever he goes. He's directed dozens of music videos, tons of television, documentaries, short and long. He shot much of Jackass. He's worked for years with Spike Jones. Uh, recently, he's been making comedy specials, including shows for Kyle Kinane, Jen Kirkman, Chelsea Peretti, and Hannibal Burris, among numerous others. And this is just like in the last three years. And he's also helped launch a cable network, Viceland. All his work shares a similarly intimate, thrown-off sensibility. It feels real. His new show for Viceland is no exception. It's called Flop House. By the way, I don't know if it's pronounced Viceland or Viceland. 
Viceland. Okay. I'm going to keep calling it Viceland. It's more fun. <laughs> uh, like Iceland. Uh, it's, that's probably pronounced Iceland, by the way. Who knows? It's built around a series of uh, – the Flophouse is built around a series of comedy house concerts, stand-up shows held in the houses where stand-ups live, the gross, dirty houses where stand-ups live. Here's San Francisco comic Kate Willett. She's showing the crew around the converted convent where she lives with a couple dozen other artsy types. And we hear her on stage. There's not a lot of spaces left like this in San Francisco, but there's a long tradition of comedians all living together. These are some roommates. Um, there's cellar roommates. I don't even know sometimes who lives here. My roommates, they're really into like essential oils and conspiracy theories. We've got a lot of conspiracy theory guys. You know, the type that likes to get super high and then just connect the dots, man. And uh, they all have their own favorite conspiracy theories, the really popular ones, or the 9 11 was an inside job, lunar landing isn't real, or my favorite, girls are trying to change me, man. Uh, <laughs> And it's like mostly dudes that you hear talking about conspiracy theories. Like you never even really hear a woman mentioning the Illuminati. I think I know why that is. I've thought about it. And I think because it's like for me, it's not mind-blowing that there could be a group of people other than myself controlling the world. Lance Bangs, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Um, So... It seems to me like one of the things that might have attracted you to this subject matter is the parallels between the the way that these comics are making their professional lives and their personal lives and everything into one kind of – all live in one place. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, yeah. and also all be kind of homemade. Yeah. There's a, there's a strong element of that that I responded to and got excited about. In in the course of traveling the country and, and meeting young comedians and people that are trying to break into making things that they put up online for people to see or doing stand-up and running the circuit of trying to come out to visit Los Angeles sometimes or New York sometimes and get seen by people or, or reps or agents, but also just get time on stage, which is so invaluable for how they further their craft and, and find their own voice. Finding all these people and realizing that there were characters living in you know Atlanta and Colorado and Portland that were just working within comedy and making stuff and that they were living in the same way that like indie rock band musicians that I'd run around with in the nineties had lived with cheap housing that they were all kind of sharing. And someone would come from Houston and crash on the couch for a week and then you'd help them get some shows. And then when you went to Houston, you'd have a place to crash there and you could get up on the local mics there. What's the first thing that uh, you remember making that you were proud of? I made a lot of personal films in my early adolescence and teens and, uh, Made a film called Jesus of Suburbia when I was probably 15 or so. And uh, Michael Stipe from R.E.M. had a group at the time that was giving grants to underground filmmakers called C-100 Film Corps that he and Jim McKay had going. And they saw some of that early work I was doing as a teenager and and really connected with it and helped bring me down to Athens, Georgia and, and would give me grants of film stock and, and backing. And there's an artist named Chris Bilheimer that was there that was invaluable and in sort of uh, helping get me brought into this artistic community in, in Athens and keep making films and then projecting them in local cafes and, and the 40 watt club, which is a, a rock venue that other bands would come through. And then some of those bands, in addition to REM saw the footage there and would then ask me to go jump in the van with them and travel and shoot footage or make music videos back when that was like a viable going concern or make things to project behind bands when they were touring and playing. And, and so that's sort of the, uh, 
when to start making stuff that got seen. It seems like, I mean, you've been doing this for decades now, but it seems like your MO is still jumping in the van with somebody. Yeah, absolutely. I have this strong compulsion that I find so many people that are making things interesting and so many forms of music and, and comedy and, and filmmaking and, and fine art compelling. And I want to go meet the people that are involved and, and figure out what's what's their take on this or how could I have a conversation or, or shoot or make something with them or collaborate on stuff. And then enjoy that process of just like finding these outposts and these uh, these singular people and spending time with them. What is it that you're looking for? I think I had a intense frustration when I was young with the monoculture that existed at the time, that things that I loved and felt passionate about were getting strangled out of any representation, that the airways were full of The Night Belongs to Michelob, Steve Winwood, Eric Clapton, coked out. Like The baby boomer grip on what was on the airwaves in the 80s was so repulsive <laughs> to me on a personal level. And my <laughs> championing or love of the things I was finding in underground culture was so strong. And then this sort of like anger at your peers of the other people in the school. I ended up in moving around a lot in different military bases, but like was in New Jersey in the 80s. And the replacements would come through town and play at City Gardens, and nobody from my high school would be there. And they would all have cassettes of Slippery When Wet by Bon Jovi. And it was like, how can you be blowing at this badly? How Like, the placements <laughs> are going to break up. Like, they're going to, you know, like, it's they're suffering right now and deserve all this, like, your, and your high school experience would be so much better if you're listening to that music and driving around to it than Slippery When Wet. And, and you're you're getting it wrong and blowing it. And I'm I'm mad at all of you for this. And so those sort of feelings made me want to go show or put more attention on the things that I did love and get them seen or, or out there in the world, or at least documented or represented so that even if I just had a tape on my shelf that no one was curious to look at for another eight years, that like it existed and it had been preserved at the moment that that version of the band was making things. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the documentarian and music video director, Lance Bangs. His new Viceland show is called Flophouse. Why are you so deeply married to um, the the kind of production that you did when you were a guy in the back of a van? And as I said, you often still are. Yeah. But like you know, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people do that on their way to trying to be Stanley Kubrick or something. So, what is it that means something about doing it that way to you? I still get more excitement and enjoyment out of going and being involved in making something in an intimate level than on a grander scale, usually. Like, I've done a few pieces that were larger, but I never went to a proper film school. I never thought, you know, like, I wasn't on a trajectory to go make Resident Evil 2. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I was interested in making personal films and have made longer form personal films that I haven't shared publicly that are just sort of in my archives for some future point. And... Like I was saying, like the, uh, you know, like in Athens, I was living with Jeff Mangum and Nutramilk Hotel when they were writing and recording in the airplane over the sea. And I knew like this is crucial material and I wish everyone was hearing this and getting as much out of this emotionally as I am and would go make sure that I was at every event to shoot and film and document it. And whether we ever find a comfort level in releasing that stuff, like it was important that it got, you know, recorded and then disseminated or passed around in cassette tapes at the time for other people to find out about. And I like as time has gone on, I felt like, yeah, like I was right about that. I was right about that. Like that there aren't a whole lot of times that I spent six months in the van with a band that didn't end up being worthwhile of my life or that experience. So how did you how did you start working with the jackass people? 
that was through Spike Jones. He had um he'd seen stuff I'd done with Pavement and Sonic Youth and Nirvana in the early nineties and there's a period of time that uh that they were touring on Lollapalooza in nineteen ninety five and playing this like really long arrangement of a beautiful song called The Diamond Sea. And they'd asked Spike who they'd worked with in the over the years prior to that on music videos to make a music video for the Diamond Sea. And they sort of said, Hey, this filmmaker, Lance Bangs, has been shooting a bunch of footage and traveling along and you should go through the Super 8 and 16 film that he has and see if there's anything there. And I was uh, just making things on a personal level at that point and wasn't as like organized or at an agency or aspiring to move out to Los Angeles or do traditional music videos or that sort of thing. So all the footage I had that summer on Super 8 was on these like long reels that had all been transferred to a video format so you could edit them. So the Sonic Youth footage was intermixed with like parking lots at night or laundromats that were open 24 hours or runaway teenagers and, you know, just all this other poetic imagery and footage I've been living and shooting during that time of my life. And so Spike wove a bunch of that imagery into the music video and then split the directing credit, which is a very generous thing for him to have done, and asked if I would come out and start shooting more footage with him. And I was a little bit sheepish and embarrassed at first to realize, like, oh, he didn't just look at the Sonic Youth footage. He went through the, you know, Lara Cohen runt fanzine footage in Pennsylvania and these parking lots in Louisville, Kentucky, and me trying to track down the guys from Slint and all this other material that was like buried in the same reels of Super 8. Um, but he brought me out to start working on things with him and shooting footage. And we made some commercials he was directing and shot sort of personal interview footage to support those or make those. And then when he started getting to make feature films, he would just sort of uh, have the studio hire me to be on set making documentaries the entire time and, and archive all the footage as we went. When uh, Jackass came out and became a thing, yeah. which was al- almost immediate when it hit television, yeah. I was a I was completely baffled by it, as a, like I didn't know from skateboards. Yeah, you know I didn't know anybody who hurt each other for fun. <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, what did you make of it when you saw it first after hanging out with uh, uh, Neutral Milk Hotel? <laughs> yeah. So there are really smart, subversive people within that contingent. And oh, so... I'm not. I'm not. Sl- <laughs> it's a. It's a totally amazing yeah. thing. It's just it was completely foreign to my cultural experience. <laughs> yeah. You know. And so you know, separate from my involvement, they were already making and shooting that stuff. So Knoxville was a very bright, interesting character that was uh, writing magazine articles for Big Brother and and started to kind of videotape and shoot stuff. And Jeff Tremaine was directing all that material. And then Spike kind of suggested they bring me in to get more intimate personality or to show the process of how these guys like realizing that like for a lot of people, this is a crazy lifestyle. And like, why would someone want to go do this dumb thing and expose themselves to hurt and injury just for the camaraderie and the potential to make their friends laugh? And how do you sort of humanize that or represent that? And there was a challenge when we were going to do the, uh, the first feature film that we didn't know whether an audience could sit through or just deal with a bunch of like start finale and things that were all like 90 seconds long back to back or whether that would just be completely fatiguing and not work as a feature film in a theater. Were there times that you were scared to be there? And I don't mean scared like you might physically get hurt, but like just scared like you might you might be filming a snuff video. Yeah, there were times that that happened and that I was like profound regret and disgusted myself for where I was and what I was doing and that this had gone horribly wrong. And, And a lot of these trips were also very much like just jumping in a 18 pass van with a bunch of guys and not stopping for meals or, you know, like just splitting rooms. And it was this very like low to the ground style of making stuff. Um, but there was like a, a golf course in the board. It might've even been across the border from Pennsylvania over in Delaware. The only, cause it's hard to talk people into letting you go film these kind of things and, and do the stunts you're going to do and mess up their property. And so in February 
probably in 2000, 2001. We couldn't find anywhere in Pennsylvania where Bam lived to film a golf course. We wanted to take two golf carts and, you know, smash them up and destroy like a miniature golf course and just see the destruction happening there. And then uh, we put it, we took out all the governors that slow down those golf carts. And so now they could do like 40, 45 miles an hour or whatever with no safety to them. There's no protection. We're not wearing helmets. And like half of us are hanging off of one while holding a, a camcorder and the other guys are driving and trying to flip it to get better footage. And, and uh, you know, the sun started going down. It was freezing. The ground was like hard. It wasn't covered in ice, but it was like frozen soil, really rocky. And we were done. We had the footage we needed of like breaking all the windmills and, and, squirrels of you know of whatever that fiberglass material is and then it was like well let's throw some of that debris out on the real golf course and try and jump over the sand dunes and see what happens and just get more footage and then uh you know knoxville got flipped and the entire weight of like a real not fake hollywood a real golf cart came down and crashed down on top of him and crushed him and it, you're holding a camera filming it and your moment of like dear god what am i doing and like do I continue and get the shot and stay with him and zoom in and check the focus and and get the image? Or do I drop the camera and run over and start pushing the golf cart over him? And, you know, some combination of you running in to try and help and other people that are more knowledgeable medically who are better to, like, not destroy someone's vertebrae by moving them are stepping in. And, and you're all realizing, like, this is all pre-cell phone, maybe. Like, we're, you know, we're in this remote spot. The sun's going down. It feels ominous. We pushed it too far. He didn't have good judgment, and now he's going to die. This embarrassing death of, like, that wasn't worth it. That's not a real reason to trade in your life for and leave your friends and loved ones behind. And how am I complicit in this, and why did I do this? And then, you know, he's out of it and concussed, and you, the guys flip the card off of him, and 20 minutes later he's got his breath back, and, and he's laughing, and he wants to see playback of the footage. So how did you resolve that for yourself? So I would have times of just like, you know, trying to decompress or figure out, like, do I just go home or call my wife, Corin or get out of here? Or what do I do? And then realize that, like, those guys love what they're doing and love you and want to keep shooting and want to go do something else the next day. And, you know, maybe take a breather, or wear a helmet if they need to and get checked for concussions. But that, like, they love the camaraderie and what they're making. And that's part of the risk they're willing to take. And, and you use your judgment and try and make the next things less dangerous. And you don't hit a destroyed fiberglass animal on a sand trap of a golf course at full speed again. <laughs> but, you know, some other idea is going to come up that's that's also potentially dangerous and, and you do what you can to avoid permanent injuries, but like keep trying to get the experience of working with these guys and making good footage. I'll finish my conversation with Lance Bangs after a break. He'll talk about the differences between documenting houses full of up-and-coming musicians in the 90s and documenting houses full of up-and-coming comedians 20 years later. It's Bullseye. From MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for Bullseye and the following message come from the Black Tux, the new way to rent a tuxedo. The Black Tux designs and manufactures handsome modern suits, far from the polyester mess you'll get at that mall rental stand. Select from complete looks or build your own. The suit will arrive seven days before your event, which leaves plenty of time to try it on. If the fit needs a tweak, the Black Tux will do whatever it takes to fix it in time. Shipping is free both ways. If you need to rent a suit or tuxedo for an upcoming wedding or special event, you don't have to do it the old-fashioned way. Visit theblacktux.com slash bullseye and experience a new way to rent. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. If you're looking for more podcasts to listen to, check out NPR One. The suggestions in NPR One are especially curated to help you find the best from public radio where you live and beyond. 
news and podcasts, NPR One is ready when you are. NPR O-N-E is on your app store. It's Bullseye, and I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to the documentarian and music video director, Lance Bangs. His new Viceland show is called Flophouse. How do you feel like your kind of um, casual, intimate connection filmmaking is different in a world where not only are there these hyper-narrativized, buffed-to-an-incredible-sheen versions of that on TV and everywhere else, but also... There are the totally raw versions of that same thing on every internet-enabled device in your hand, you know, in social media and uh, on YouTube and everywhere else. Yeah. How do you how do you feel like it's different now? I feel like I love the ability for people to kind of make their own content and get it out to people. And I love digging through that and finding stuff. And I love that, like, if I loved and saw a performance or an artist or an installation piece somewhere that I can see what that person's up to now. Even if they never left Asheville, North Carolina, I can see the next five works or shows that they did or pieces that they did. Uh, If there's someone that I saw open up for a band in Spokane, Washington in 2000, I can see what that band ended up splintering off into and what they ended up doing afterwards. And if I wanted to send a letter through fail, you know, or send a note through Facebook saying like, Hey, I, that tape you made in 2000 was great. What are you up to now? Like the ability to track people down and find them through that has been invaluable and, and really great. Uh, so I, I don't have any, I don't like romanticize anything about what it was like trying to get stuff out in the past compared to the ability now. And on the higher end, the sort of like sheen of packaged, processed, heightened, if not fake versions of uh, follow documentaries or reality TV. I honestly haven't watched a ton of that. Like I know that it's out there and we've done parodies of it in some other TV shows I've worked on like Loiter Squad. But, like, I haven't sat through episodes of The Housewives of whatever or uh, tracked a whole lot of that. I want to ask you about Viceland, the network, yeah. which I know you've been involved in the creation of Above and Beyond Just This Show. Yeah. And um, uh, Spike Jones is the sort of creative He's director, a creative director yeah. or something. Um, uh, the Vice brand is a really problematic one. Yeah, definitely. Um, what do you feel like is the opportunities and baggages that it carries when to have something that has vice on the top of it. Yeah. That was an interesting thing to kind of decide what to do about or how to, to deal with. So at its core, it was founded by, you know, a combination of characters that were in Montreal that were taking arts funding from the government there to make a, a free paper, essentially. And it was called The Voice, and then it turned into Vice, and, and then they realized that they could just kind of go do it themselves and kind of expanded and and started doing stuff in New York in the early 2000s and then kind of grew from there. And that ethos and and core of it being like a free thing that was like disseminated out to the culture and that they just made money off of advertising and then were able to make it where they weren't selling it for five bucks, it was free. And if they put on a a concert or a show, it was free and that it wasn't something you paid $20 to go to the pier and see. It was like a free event or a free party or all that sort of thing. And that was sort of the ethos that they worked in and operated and then you know, clearly worked with advertising to kind of fund doing that that setup. Um, I would say that in the mid to late 2000s, when Spike had given them the advice about filming the things that they're writing for the magazine, where they would go to these exotic places and, and do investigative journalism, that, like, they really should take a camera along and get footage of it as well. And then they started to kind of realize, like, the value of doing that and that they were getting all this great footage. And this is when people were able to kind of have, like, really nice looking DV camcorders that were made by Panasonic at the time that looked more filmic and less like garbagey video and that made people's skin look more flattering and that felt more like a film or a movie. 
Um, so they would shoot stuff on that. And then they asked about us making content or making like a website with them. And I personally like had too much wariness or baggage about like the, like I'm not like a drug person or a debaucherous person or, or those sort of destructive sides of things that maybe they could have been perceived as having glamorized through the magazine a bit. Um, and there were certain personalities at the magazine at the time that were not my <laughs> my persona or, or, or taste either. And so I didn't want to do something under that name or umbrella. And so uh, I think Spike, I don't want to speak for him, but I think he might have had some similar feelings at that point early on. And like, well, what about this one guy? And what's, you know, is he part of this? And they were sort of like splitting off from him and his involvement at the time. And maybe this is stuff that I don't know the right legal details and all that. But essentially, like on a personal level, like what that name might mean wasn't what I was about. And so when we did that website, it was called VBS and not Vice. And we made a bunch of content. And then like there was this a, amazing emphasis and political priority among the, the people like Shane Smith and Eddie Moretti and Sarush at Vice for what they wanted to focus on. And that like they weren't interested in just running around and glamorizing the party scene in New York. They were interested in going into the Congo and getting footage of what's actually going on there and going into Yemen and showing where guns are getting made and, you know, the ages of the people involved in that world and sort of humanizing a lot of things that like the established media was no longer brave enough to go send cameras in to go cover regularly or uh, to get as intimate and personal and direct about and being able to sort of not have the uh, classic sense of a objective journalism, but rather be like, I don't know everything about this, but this is up. This kid shouldn't be 12 years old holding his own version of an AK-47 that they're making. Like, this is, you know, to be able to, like, verbalize that and get that footage and then get it out and then show it to essentially a bunch of 22-year-old people in the U.S. who weren't otherwise reading The Guardian um, felt like it had value and was interesting and that, like, the name began to mean more of that to me and less of, like, photo shoots for American Apparel in the early 2000s. And so I was able to kind of like make content and make pieces and short films and web videos and stuff that they would get behind that was of the things that I valued or the things that meant something to me. And they would host those and, and show those. And so, you know, footage of Bonnie Prince Billy or artists that I loved or the guys in No Age early on playing at a vegan food co-op in Portland was what started to become my sense of what Vice could be or what I wanted to make stuff as. And so... Getting to kind of know and love uh, Eddie and, and Sarush and, and Shane, that version of it and that combination of people felt like people that I respected and wanted to work with and was happy to start making stuff for under that name. What did you see was like the – because I'll tell you, like for, for me, like the one of the huge values of Vice to big media companies is that they've – managed to connect with the quote-unquote millennial audience in yeah. a way that a lot of people haven't, especially in um, newsy nonfiction. And um, when I've when I've watched Vice-branded stuff, I have these two feelings, one of which is like, this is incredible and compelling and brave very often, and sometimes very beautiful. And I also feel like something about the tone is flipping me off. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, it's like there is an element of a lot of the people that go make these pieces of, you know, this is my take on it. And some of you who don't get it, um, that is a, a weird dichotomy. They're not not everybody's trying to be people pleasing or trying to be cute or attractive or uh, or liked by everybody. Does that make sense? It what, does, are, what are yeah. your other issues or what are your other like uh, things that it conjures to you that 
that the you things find? that are the most uncomfortable to me, and I, you know, I really like and admire both your work and the show. So I don't want to like, I don't want it to seem like I'm being uh, unnecessarily adversarial. And I'm also not a super expert, yeah. mostly because I've sometimes found it distasteful. Yeah. But like, there is a kind of uh, aggressive, mean self-centeredness when you're like. I'm pretty sure this is about child soldiers. Like this is like the greatest tragedy going on on earth right now. Why do I feel like you're yelling at me <laughs> about yourself? Yeah. I, I have to say that I think that the tone that Spike has set for the actual, the TV network version of it, the Viceland thing that's out so far, has been to really focus on humanity and intimacy and empathy and what the human connection in each story is and that there's more of a sense of exploring the world and what it means and what it feels like to be a, alive as a young person in 2016. And I think that um, what he's kind of prioritized in, you know, Ellen Page's show with her friend Ian Daniel Gaycation, where they're sort of going and experiencing the world now that she's able to be more comfortable or open or out about her sexuality, to go explore, like, places you might think are fun or easy or glamorous to be out in the LGBTQ community, but then realizing, like, oh, no, Brazil's not just all carnival. There are people here that are actively, like, hunting down and killing people they perceive to be gay. And that... Japan is fun and playful as it may seem that there's like a lot of codes of, of suppression and, and internalized fear of being expressive there about sexuality that, that mean that some people are having very difficult lives and we get to go kind of explore that or see how she deals with, you know, making friends and, and finding how people are able to come out to their parents or, or go to bars or live there in that world. So there's a lot more humanity in the stuff on the TV version of it on Viceland than might have been in the magazine reporting or uh, web content in the past. Why are you so interested in, in comedy now? There was a time that uh, in the American underground that I was like interested in musically. When I would go to other places and travel, there was like great local music scenes in all these different areas. Portland, Seattle, Athens, Georgia, different spots in the Midwest, Chicago, Minneapolis, Louisville. But then when I would go out to Los Angeles to work on editing a music video or help Spike shoot a commercial or whatever weird project was going on here... At night, the venues here were primarily oriented towards like bands playing the Sunset Strip, trying to get signed or brought out here to do press or promo stuff and playing a show at a club because they were in town. And that's way less interesting to me. That, that sort of racket of like post-Nirvana signings of bands that were aspiring to be on major labels. And so at night, when you're looking for something to do, uh, Mr. Show was going on and, and that was way more fascinating. And the stuff that David Cross and Bob Odenkirk and Paul F. Tompkins and Jeannie and Garofalo were doing stand-up-wise that was inventive and kind of a different approach and energy from 80s stand-up comedy was what I wanted to go spend time and check out and see. So there was like uh, On Cabaret was a great show that they would all do where you weren't allowed to do prepared material. You'd have to just kind of like talk about what had happened recently or weird stories that you wouldn't share on stage normally at a club or things that were happening at Largo under Flanagan's auspices that were great. And, you know, maybe you would go see like a band play at No Life Records or do an in-store appearance, like if Elliot Smith would come down and spend time. But that was sort of what was more interesting to go do at night rather than like whatever was at the Whiskey A Go-Go. Does that make sense? Well, I mean, it sounds like what you wanted in part was the intimacy that comes with stand-up comedy performances and especially stand-up comedy performances that aren't a roadshow. Yeah. Like hometown stand-up performances are about finding something. Correct. In a often in a place where there's you know I went to a comedy show in a record store near my house the other day, and uh, maybe there was fourteen people there, yeah. you know, twelve people, something like that, including comics, including three national headliners, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's exciting, and and 
that would be a better way to go spend the evening and then go out to a diner afterwards with those people and catch up and hear their take on whatever is going on in the news was more fun and engaging. And a lot of those people are music fans. And so then you would be like, you know, trading burnt CDs of of granddaddy or whatever that you were excited about at the moment. Let's take a listen to another clip from, I guess, Lance Bang's new television show. Um, it's called Flophouse. It's on Viceland. Uh, this is Claire O'Kane. Uh, she's a Los Angeles comic uh, in the first episode. And um, she's on stage in a garage in Highland Park, Los Angeles. Um, and she just talked about Ray Rice punching his fiance. And, and she's been talking about but basically um, uh, a comic who was on stage before her who got a big laugh out of a joke uh, saying that if women wanted to be equal, they should learn to take a punch. Fighting someone half your size is not a fair fight. Right? Let's just say that. Hey, thank you. Wow, thank you so much. Like, Mike Tyson versus the dancing baby from Ellie McBeal is not a fair fight. Oh, is that reference curtain enough for anybody? You don't remember the first gif? World's first gif, baby! Dancing baby! Like, it was cool that it was a dancing baby, but why did it have to dance like that? Because <laughs> nobody else first of its kind. And I'm not saying uh, that all women are dancing babies. <laughs> not. I'm just saying that our bodies are built differently. They're way better. They're so much better. It's true. They're so cool to look at and interesting and complex. <laughs> much like, I don't know, maybe like the Great Barrier Reef. <laughs> or I don't know, maybe like the rainforest or other things that have been destroyed by a man. Did you know uh, before you started making this show about comedy houses, which are totally a thing? Yeah. Uh, during that time period of the of the 90s and early 2000s, you would go over and hang out socially and like one guy would be a writer for The Simpsons and someone else was doing stand-up and someone else did the props on Mr. Show. And they'd have a fun apartment and they'd have like the video game Halo and they would all – you know, Brian Posehn would come over and play video games and Jay Johnston would, you know, there was this kind of like social world around comedy in Los Angeles and that there would be houses of people who are less established, who are still kind of trying to break in. And you'd hear stories about, you know, on the East Coast that Mark Marin and Louis C.K. and David Cross had shared an apartment at some point or that Adam Sandler and Judd Apatow crashed together in a gross there was spot. A, there was an apartment uh, near Ninth Avenue in San Francisco that uh, I remember, my, I remember my friend W. Kamau Bell when the last comedian moved out of it, um, which was maybe three years ago. Uh, Kamau posted something on social media about remembering his time there, uh, which would have been ten years ago, twelve years ago. And apparently, this apartment in San Francisco had just been handed from set of comedians to set of comedians on a rotating roommate basis since the mid 80s. So something like 25 years of of gross comedians (laughs) piling grossness upon grossness. (laughs) What's great about comedians is uh, none, they all get so angry when they're asked to stay in on the road in these things called comedy condos that, um, 
that comedy clubs sometimes will own or rent a condo because it's cheaper than putting comics up in the hotel who are yeah. in town to play shows. And yet they all choose to basically live in the <laughs> in the like most concentrated version of that exactly. of their actual lives, yeah. just on top of each other, <laughs> just smoking and pouring liquor on each other. Yeah. I, I couldn't live that way. <laughs> you seem to be really attracted, though, to these folks who are in this period in their life where everything is subservient to creativity. Yeah. Nobody's turning down sets or open mic performances to go hang out with a serious fiancé or plan their next, like, adult lives together. They're... They're just all about making, 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 working, trying things out, experimenting, learning what didn't work, making, making, traveling somewhere else to try things there. And that energy and that sort of compulsion is something that I relate to and get excited about filming and, and tagging along for and being involved in. And that they're also living just a few steps ahead of this fear, which is that it is really hard to just to make enough money or to eat or especially in places like that's a big theme of the San Francisco episode, um, but certainly Los Angeles, New York, Seattle, these are not that different, where it's really hard to have a squatter's lifestyle simply yeah. because of the way the economy works. Yeah. Most of these people are making trade-offs where they don't have regular health insurance and they are calling in favors to be able to crash somewhere and whatever possessions they've managed to acquire, they end up selling on Craigslist or trading off to uh, help make rent when they need to and it is definitely a lot of sacrifice to be able to uh, commit to, to trying to work in comedy. What's it like for you to be among that level of commitment and try to match it when you're a grown-up with kids? <laughs> and I hope you have health <laughs> yeah, insurance. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I've ended up just through the course of making things and, and working on the things I wanted to, being able to kind of like build up an archive of equipment to keep shooting with and have a house and, and, and be able to support kids and and have a great uh partner and and wife who also is doing well and has uh been able to kind of thrive alongside me culturally and so it is weird to do you know to know that i have a place to go i'm gonna go crash at the chateau marmont tonight to be honest like you know <laughs> what i mean that like i i have that sort of thing set up and can help these people and hire them as much as i can and and find ways to employ them or give them money or slip them cash to keep going or deal with like rent problems or whatever. But um, it is a weird thing to have like, but there were times in my life where I was just out, you know, on my own trying to find a place to crash in a laundromat and um, having gone through that and, and not thinking I would still be alive now or that I would be sad or comfortable or making stuff. I can relate or, or know the struggle of what they're going through and why they commit to it and what the, what the benefits are, why it's rewarding to them to live that way. Is it weird to be a guy that was in Jack? Yeah. At the time it was mortifying. <laughs> like I often when shooting those things would wear like a visor protecting my face or try and as much as I could stay off camera and out of the way and not be known or overly attached to that. And in recognizability wise, like if I go into like a Best Buy, like way more people are going to like, recognize the name on a credit card purchase and be like, oh, like the guy who throws up in Jackass than I would want, you know? <laughs> it's, such a, it's such a weird thing to be associated with because rarely is there something that is that pervasive of a cultural influence, yeah. like that broad of a cultural influence. 
that amazing and brilliant and that weird and embarrassing. Yeah, it's all those <laughs> like, things. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> like it's not like you. It's not like you just worked on like Spider Man three that no the Spider Man that no one liked. Yeah, you know, and you're like, oh, I can't <laughs> believe I worked on Spider Man three because that's not a brilliant and ingenious. Yeah. Uh, no offense to any of those uh, Spider-Man one and two, obviously were totally awesome. <laughs> yeah, but like, I honestly, I I was fine with Spider-Man three. I liked it more than most people did. But like, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It, it, what a weird group of things to feel about something. Yeah, it's a, it's a strange and unique combination of uh, of feelings. And I'm incredibly proud and and love those guys and and feel like they're brothers and they're uncles to my children and will you know help them in any way that I can for the rest of my life. It seems like there's something in. Uh, in Flophouse, uh, which is your show on Viceland, that is very sincerely interested in uh, the humanity of performers um, and just the kind of little things about being a person um, that is something you rarely get to see on TV. And it seems like something that you've tried to build into what you do very consciously. Yeah, even in, in past work prior to Flophouse, if I could ever get invited to go into someone's actual house and film with them, that was always a goal in my mind. And that, like, the real off-white walls of cheap apartments that people live in that don't look like what gets into uh, reality TV or feature films or representations of what people's houses look like. Um, and the real kind of personal accoutrements or things they've tacked up on the wall that have more to them than sort of what an art director was able to clear that had no logos on it of like a generic painting of a boat out in the water. Uh, seeing what that's like and then how that shifts over time has always been interesting in me. And if I go look at footage I shot in the early 90s and see, oh, yeah, this is what people had for furniture because there wasn't Target yet in everyone's area. And now people who have no money in their 20s are getting stuff at Target instead. Uh, that that stuff is interesting to me and shows the setting and the choices and personal taste of the the homes that people build for themselves. And so I love seeing that and, and reflecting that and kind of building that world into the frame of what I shoot. I mean, a home is a fundamentally intimate thing. I mean, I, I did my show from my yeah. house for many years. Um, and I still, as intimate as this this weird modular studio that I bought on Craigslist that we're talking to each other in right now is, like I still do miss the idea of welcoming someone into my house and sitting them down at my desk, which yeah. is what I used to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's true, and I'm conscious of that. I'm trying to get to that setting and that moment with most people that I film. It seems like that is that achieving that kind of intimacy is a goal that you've had throughout your work, not just in the show. Yeah, that's always been an important element of what I do, and sort of uh, finding a camera that's not too obtrusive that I can sort of like hold near eye level, but still maintain eye contact with the people I'm talking to and filming, and to not have it be like five dudes and three point lighting and you being very conscious that you're on camera at the moment and having to second guess everything and then resent yourself if you misspoke to try and avoid all of that by just making it uh, more personable and more intimate is, is what I'm usually aiming for. Were you at all concerned that Steve Agee might accidentally shoot someone with that bow and arrow? Yeah, he, he definitely like <laughs> scuffed the lens of one of my cameras. He definitely did not seem to have high level bow and arrow skills. No. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed like a real leaning out of the golf cart situation. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you so much for uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was yeah, really I'm great so to get to, be to talk to you. Right on. Lance Bang's new show uh, on the Viceland cable network is called Flop House. You can watch it on the network if you get it. You can also uh, watch it on the Viceland website. 
Every week we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the outshot. When a rock song rocks, you don't really hear the lyrics. You feel them, which is why this lyric is so spectacular. Generals gathered in their masses Just like witches at black masses I read an explanation of how the Black Sabbath song War Pigs got its lyric. It's something about war as the ultimate evil, the true devil. But what matters isn't so much that as the feeling it gives you, the complete package, the thrill. Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Black Sabbath's greatest power lies in how they frame fragility against strength, fear against bravado. Listen to Ozzy Osbourne strain his way through the lead vocal of Paranoid. Might be their most recognizable hit. It's an ode to depression. And Osbourne somehow sounds both broken and triumphant. Black Sabbath wrote relentlessly dark songs, but they're alchemical. They turn darkness, war and death and loneliness into this incredible, defiant sense of power. absurd, of course, the whole grand aesthetic, the demons and the death and the war to end all war. Robert Christgau, the dean of American rock critics, said he couldn't get over it. He said he could only listen to Paranoid as an artifact of camp. But here's my recommendation to old Bobby Christgau and to you. Don't listen to the songs. Feel them, because there's nothing else like it. That's my outshot. Come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith, production fellow at Maximum Fund is Abadian X. Borello. Our production assistant is Christian Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. Thanks to Ashley Ann Krigbaum at KLW in San Francisco for engineering help this week. And of course, as always, thanks to KLW for giving me my free lunch menus when I was in high school. If you'd like to hear any of our past programs, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's a roundtable discussion of everything that's great in popular culture. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.